on your language, catch yourself. Don't give up what you're doing. Don't not make money. Don't opt out of capitalism. You don't have to move to a self-sustaining farm with windmills, but just claim what works for you as what works for you and know that it's not one size fits all. Raise 1000 Voices is the podcast on a mission to raise the voices of the clever, creative and courageous women across the world. I am your host, Jacqueline Nagel, and I invite you to join me in conversations with women who will inspire and empower you as we explore just how to lift our levels of self-trust, to reclaim the narrative and to use our voice to go after exactly what we want, doing it with strength, power and grace. So today, as promised in late 22, we were going to do a part two with Dr. Angela Laurier. And I am so thrilled that we get to have a conversation again because I just love talking to you, Angela. Just love being in your world. I know we have so much in common and it's so fun to hang out. This is how we hang out now. We make podcasts. <laughs> yeah, we make podcasts and get on Zoom screens and look at each other through glass. So, <laughs> um, Angela, the reason why I wanted to bring you back for part two, those who are listening along would remember that we actually did quite a long episode, part one, which is really talking about books and authorship and some of the crazy stories that we both have and our love of post-it notes. But what I would really love to do and why I got you back is because there is this other part of you, which is about unmasking autism. Now, where I want to go with that is actually wherever we go with it, but I want everyone to lean into this conversation because it's we're going to be talking about unmasking autism and some of the things that go with that. But I think for everybody, it's about how do we take the mask off and how do we see each other more clearly? And one that where I'd love to start, if it's okay with you, is... Yesterday you had, you're running an open journal called Unmasking Autism across Facebook and I think Instagram as well, yeah? Um, I'm, I'm bad Facebook. at Instagram. Mostly Amazing Facebook. Facebook. <laughs> Amazing Facebook. We all have our favourite platforms where we hang out the most. So You know why? Because I talk too much and Instagram doesn't want you to have long captions. No. really long. I know. I actually, I'm trying to get really disciplined, but I must admit yesterday I used the comment, the the post and the first comment to get my Instagram message out. So I totally understand. But yes, it was about spins. And the reason it got my attention as a place to start this conversation is years and years ago when I was learning, uh, going very deep into how do we communicate more powerfully? How do we understand how to connect? Because communication is actually about connection. It's not about what you say. Mm. I learned I went very deep down rabbit holes with the representational systems and how we use language. And what I discovered in that was the the women in my team, in my office, who were doing a ministry of functions who wanted their headphones on. And in those days, it was big headphones. It wasn't, you know, AirPods mm-hmm. like we have now. I thought they were rude and not concentrating. What I learned was they needed music to process their work because of their representational system. And it kind of flipped a few things in my head. And then I also, one of the fastest realizations for me was my eldest son, who is very smart. He's um, he's in the top couple of percent of students in Australia. He's gone on to, for a career in politics. He's supporting a senator. He would really pick me up on my tone of voice. So he would like, we'd be having conversation or I'd lean in my head into his room to say, hey, can you do? And he would like look at me and literally pull me up my tracks and say, don't use that tone of voice with me. And I'd be like on the other side going, what tone of voice? What are you talking about? I'm just 
having a conversation with you. And what I learned was his primary style was auditory, which meant he was hypersensitive to tone and could pick mm-hmm. it up. Like he didn't care what you looked like. And trust me, when I see him walk out of the house some mornings, he doesn't care what things look like, but he was hypersensitive to tone. So when you did this journal piece yesterday on spins, it really got my attention. And I'd love to know, for the audience that probably aren't across that journal, I'd love you to start with us there, start with that conversation. Yeah. So I think one of the things that happened, I was diagnosed as autistic in, I was just about to turn 40. So it was 10 years ago. Wow. Yeah. And I immediately, it was good news for me. So I know that especially if it's a kid, it can be really traumatic that your kid gets diagnosed with autism. And does this mean they'll never be successful or never find love or all those things? But for me, it was actually good news because it was like this answer to why certain things so hard in my life. Like one of the things, so the way I listen, I don't have a big headphone thing. I have some other things, sensory, but headphones isn't mine. But if I was in a meeting, like when I worked in corporate, I had to do two things in a meeting. One is I had to take notes on my computer because otherwise I would stop paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I'm trying to hold too many things and then I just start zoning out. And so I just kind of type everything, which by the way, if you're running a meeting can be annoying because click, 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 click. (laughs) So I would get told you can't have your computer, but I can't write as fast as I can type. Yeah. And I can't, so it doesn't help me to write. Yeah. And so I would often get in trouble for this. And then the other thing I did was I would use Google and I would search for extra information about things, which felt like I wasn't paying attention. Yeah. Me, it was like extra. I wasn't like buying a bikini. Like to me, I was paying extra attention, more attention than anyone in the room. Yeah, because you're going deeper down that rabbit hole. Right, exactly. And so I would get in trouble for it. So when I got diagnosed, I was like, ah, that explains why I did this, why I did that, why? And it was like amazing. Yeah. And until the pandemic, so that was like seven years after my diagnosis, it was a very positive experience. And mostly I felt like me knowing, I was never like in the closet, but I didn't really talk about it much. It was just like, I don't know. Oh, I'm that's talking about blood. Yeah. 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 So like, I'm sure my blood type matters. I read the blood type diet, like, I, but I'm not, posting about it. Like I'm not that into it, but (laughs) it just informed me and how people reacted to me and why things were different for me. And that was great. No problem. Then during the pandemic, I had um, all of the systems that I had set up in order to manage my autism. Yeah. Collapsed. So I had systems for how I worked with my team. I had people who I had said, you know, like, I know your son's not autistic, but I had people who I had trained. Don't take that tone of voice with me. Like, whatever. I, everybody yeah. around me. Should, now all those people were gone. I had a house manager, some really bad at executive functioning. Yeah. My house manager couldn't come in. She had two little kids. Yeah. She, so she couldn't come in because she now her kids were home and I couldn't really hire someone. Number one, our business was collapsing. But number two, it was hard to hire people to come work at your house because everyone wanted to be at their house. 
So yeah. all executive functioning supports were gone. All of my routines that kind of keep me emotionally regulated were gone. And I went into something called autistic burnout. Right. And when that happened, I started looking at my autism very differently. Then I started looking at, there were things I knew to do, whatever, post on Facebook, um, yeah. make a video, yeah. all these things. And I literally could not do them. It wasn't that I didn't know. Uh, see, I this couldn't. is interesting. If I can just give you a quick correlation, because I, and I, I do speak about, but not a lot, but I, I'm, I live with complex PTSD. And what happens when it's triggered is I don't have depression and manic episodes. I don't have depression and, you know, suicidal ideation. What I have is it's literally like a brain snap. So when my brain reaches that point, everything stops and I don't know how to do it. Right. So yeah. I, I literally look at, but I know how to do this. You know, I had, I had to have a conversation with a client before Christmas because I can no longer do work that I did 10 years ago and I hadn't realized. And so we, it was a really emotional thing because it was the first time I'd said out loud to a client, I know I'm brilliant at this and have been for 20 years, but it no longer exists for me. Right. It literally, and yeah, and literally I can, and so when I hit that point and luckily now I can see it coming, but it's like a snap. It's like, I look at the things and I go, I know how to do this, but I need to back away from the desk. I need to back away from the house because right now I can't Rest. do it, nope. which the sounds only like exactly the same sort of in a different context, Very it's the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. But before I was diagnosed, I was just masking or trying to act normal. Yeah. After I was diagnosed, I put in more supports for myself, which is great. I self-advocated. I put in supports. But when that fell apart, who was going to predict a pandemic? Like yeah. when it fell apart and I went into autistic burnout, which is like the CPSD snapping thing. Yeah. I, it didn't, I know what positive thinking is. I know what a growth mindset is. I know what law of attraction is. None of it was accessible. Yeah. And then I started thinking differently about my clients, clients Ooh. that I knew were brilliant, that weren't achieving, that weren't necessarily autistic, but yeah. we're all, you know, we're a neurodivergent species. There are yeah. tulips and orchids and daffodils, and we got a whole, doesn't matter if you're autistic or not. Everybody's brain is a little bit different, just like every rose is a little bit different. Never mind yeah. roses and daffodils. And so I suddenly was like, this is why when I say, make a post on Facebook, here is the template. Copy this text, post it with this photo. Here is a photo. I'm like, do I need to go to their house and do it? Why won't these people just do what I tell them? Now I was on the other side of that. Yeah. How did that feel? Oh my God. Like total failure. Cause of course yeah. I had clients at this time. Yeah. And I had told so many people and made so many videos and a hundred percent believed like you should just do it. Hire a coach. Yeah. They'll tell you what to do. Do it. Yeah. Ta-da. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the magic wand. Right. And I was like, Oh, this is what is happening. No, that's not every single client. 
None. So if you're listening and you're not doing it, just do it. But yeah, if you're <laughs> yeah don't you don't use it as a crutch. <laughs> right. Don't use it as a crutch. But if you're like, oh, why am I so paralyzed when I know this stuff? I know this shouldn't be hard. Like, I think understanding neurodivergence and the supports your brain might need. Yeah. Um, you know, like for for me, when I hit that break point, the only option was to rest. Yeah. It, it is I the same way. It is the same in my world as well. I have to opt out I for a bit. Balls. I could do some things. It's a little bit like spoon theory with chronic illness. Like I had enough battery to do, you know, write one thing or do one thing, but my battery was like drained, like yeah. pancake. Yeah. And I couldn't, I couldn't just find more. I couldn't plug into a power source until I could. Yeah. So, um, my word of the year for 2023 is unmask. And I did a lot of work. My autistic burnout was in late 2020. So it yeah. was, I was super Into suicidal. The pandemic. Yeah. September to December of 2020. So we lost our home and our office building and about 30 staff members in July of 2020. Yeah. And so by September, there was just nothing left and of me. Was, and let's be very clear neurodivergent or not there is that's human response to such a seismic shift and change right yeah. and at the beginning i did just think it was grief mm-hmm. i thought it was you know whatever a bunch of things but yeah. when i realized like how my neurodivergence was playing in i started looking at it, not just from, yay, I'm diagnosed. Now I can get these supports. The supports I was actually getting in those first seven years were about me adapting to how the neuro majority would like us to behave. I didn't always succeed, but I was like, oh, this would be the correct behavior in the neuro majority. This is what people expect of me. Let me try harder to do that. I will get more supports to do that. Yeah. So what you do is you increase the scaffolding around you. Massively, which has a yeah. lot to do with white privilege that I was able yeah. to, do that. to do that. Yeah. Um, it has to do with wealth that I was able to do that. Like, so one of the things super hard for me is flying. So we just got a plane and I just flew private and solved that problem. Yeah. Right. Privilege. So it's like, oh, my support has gone away. Is my private plane support? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but You're I want, so then I'm like, why can't you do it too? Well, maybe because you don't have a friggin' private plane. Yeah. So what shifted for me is I was like, okay, what if I stop doing all this extra work, both with finances and staff and people? And what if I just try and be myself more? What happens then? Oh, I can and feel that was really, it was a very big identity shift. And I realized, oh my God, not only was I masking until I was 40 and I was diagnosed, but then I just masked better. Yeah, I was just going to say, it sounds like you actually, you actually laid up the mask once you knew. <laughs> Which I didn't realize because I did talk about being autistic, but then I was adapting in every way. I knew every single way autistic people normally mess things up. And I was like, I'm going to fix each and every one. I'm going to fill in every crack. 
So I was juggling all that plus doing my job. And then all the plates crashed around me. And I was like, I could build those supports up again, but I don't want to. I love that. There is, there is. And one of the reasons why I love it, I, and it's a conversation I haven't had for so long, but women neurodivergent or neuronormal, we all go through dark night of the soul in the 40s and 50s, right? Yep. And those who don't make it through are the ones that, you know, in mythology turn into crones and those that do make it through become, you know, generous and soul-filled and loving their life. And so one of the things that I find really interesting, though, is that most women, when they hit, there and that, hit that in their 40s, are like, I already did this in my 20s and my 30s. I already tore my world down at some stage or went on a different pathway or whatever. But what I find is, and I think that's what you're talking about, what I spoke about with this was it's like the first time you blow up your world or you stand for yourself, you feel like it's an act of rebellion, you feel like you've discovered yourself, but you've actually still playing within the box, you've just got different colored crayons, right? Mm-hmm. So your first step is actually still, or you might be, you might have broken out of the box, but you can still touch back to the box, which is kind of like what you're saying. Like I functioned and I did this. I found I was autistic and I did this and I put the scaffolding in. And then what happens in the 40s and 50s when you go through dark night of the soul as a woman is you actually discover that, oh, that was only step one. I was halfway. Now Mm -hmm. I need to go all the way to who I truly am and what I want to show up in the world as. And so that kind of sounds to me like that diagnosis of autism and you built the scaffolding is like that step one, you're still playing with the crayons inside the box. You just change the color of the crayons. Right. Yep, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't see that or know that. So my word of the year for 2023 is unmask. Yeah. Um, because I've had a couple years of therapy and research and deep diving. And I'm like, what does it mean to drop some of that? Now, I'm obviously, I still need to like function in the world. Yeah. But I'm like, how can I be more of myself and do less work for what do they call that with um in feminism? Invisible labor. Yeah. Or like to load. Yeah. Like I have a huge amount of invisible labor I was doing, which of course is going to lead to a crash. And women Absolutely. do that all the time in their relationships. And so I'm like, what if I drop some of this emotional load? And um So I've been keeping this public diary about that journey. Um, It's partly based on a book from a person named Devin Price. It's called Unmasking Autism is the book. And I'm sort of doing my own active project in that. And one of the things um, that I did a post on recently is special interests. So you mentioned spins. So in the neurodivergent community, we will talk about special SP interests, IN, and we call them spins. Um, But they, when they're, when they manifest in little kids and the jokes are usually about little boys that are like obsessed with Thomas the Tank Engine. Yep. And um, it manifests differently in women and certainly different in adults. But um the way that a lot of people treat that, like people, therapists, parents, is you can earn, if you're a good boy and you don't throw a tantrum in the grocery store, you can earn 30 minutes of Thomas the Tank Engine. So the yeah. idea is your spin is a reward for masking. 
And of course, what we're viewing, if you think about like behavioralism is we're saying you are lovable when you mask, we're teaching people to mask. And we know masking leads to suicide. Um, Nine in one autistic women um, are commit suicide. We have like incredibly high suicide rates. Wow. That has to do with masking. Yeah. So it's even higher among women than men because we have the intersectionality of being a woman in a patriarchal society. So we're masking anyway, and then masking on top of masking. And yeah. So um, spins are actually these special interests. Um, they work differently in an autistic brain. And this is so, what I'm really interested in. Yes. Yeah, so this is where it gets fun. So in a neurotypical brain, and again, we're all different. There's not like two types of brains, neurotypical, no. non-neurotypical. There's as many types of brains as flowers. Yeah. So everything's a sliding scale and there are many variables. People can't be put into boxes and no two autistic people are the same, just like no two non-autistic people are the same. But for most, the majority of neurotypical people, when they see a human they love, a part of your brain, which indicates like safety from like caveman times, Yep. Like, this is my tribe. This is my community. I will be safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I see that person and I have a warm feeling. Yeah. That part of the brain is called the fusiform face area. Right. And in many autistic people, we have something called face blindness. There's a super famous book by a guy named Oliver Sacks, who's an amazing neuroscientist. It's called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, um, which is about face blindness. It's an amazing book. Um, So, and I have this condition and I always knew about the face blindness. What I didn't know is the same exact part of your brain, which is about here, that gets triggered when you're neurotypical and you see your family and you're like, food, shelter, love, warmth, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is available to me. Yeah. That is triggered when we see Thomas the Tank Engine or whatever our special interest is. Uh, And see, this is the bit that you touched on in the latest journal post. And I was like, just thinking of, you know, I do have cousins who are autistic. I do have, who were really autistic. I do have neurodivergent people that I know and love. And that suddenly made sense when you, you touched on it yesterday, but you just described it perfectly because they do, it becomes their thing and that's all they want to be with. And from the outside looking in, we're like, that's not healthy. Like, where's the people? Put that down. Spend time with people. Yeah. Go outside. Yeah. Yeah. My my mom would say, get get that puss off your face was my mom's line all the time. Because all I wanted was my books. Yeah. And I had to sit at the kitchen table without a book, which why can I not take my book to the table? Apparently I was gonna spill food on it. I'm like, I don't I care. Don't care. <laughs> my friend, I want my friend. So then I would like have some sort of pout on my face for the whole meal. And then my mom would like punish me by making me, I don't know, do the dishes or something like spend even more time away from my books. Yeah. Right. And so, and that's the whole, like, if you're good, you can have 30 minutes. My mom would be like, if you're good, you could stay up till 11. 
And so then I made like in my closet, I would sit in my closet and read and I would stay up all night, but then I was like tired for school and then I would get in trouble and I would get grounded for the weekend. But it was because I was like, this is going to get taken away from me. This is my Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And like literally like where we fight for people that we love, your Mm -hmm. love thing, your love is the book. So you fight for time with that. You know, every brain is different, but I have always been obsessed with books as well. And my stepmother, to punish me, actually took all the books out of the house. Right. Because she said, you've got to stop reading that that rubbish. You've got to be present with the people. And because I books were my passport out, I guess. And Mm -hmm. she actually removed all the books from the house and bad me. She read and she had a stash in a box that she would read from, but she removed all the books from the house that I couldn't read. So I completely, not probably to the level of actually loving them like another human, but I really understand that, you know, that pulling away and that punishment almost, isn't it? Right. Well, it is a huge punishment, especially for autistic kids. Yeah. And there's a popular type of therapy called ABA therapy where they actually teach this and is very damaging and leads to definitely. They teach what? They teach therapists. ABA therapy is based on like this reward Pavlovian behavioral. So they teach, take the special interests away. And when they demonstrate neurotypical behavior, you can give them one of their, you know, 30 minutes with Thomas the Tank Engine. That is how, now listen, if you are the parent of, what'd you say you had? Three under five? You got three kids under five. One of them's autistic. You're trying to get the other one to ballet. Like, I am not in favor of ABA, but I understand like parents are just like, give me something. What do I do? Absolutely. And there are times definitely where I, you have to use those mechanisms when the world is crazy and you've got children running around and yeah, we had three under five and multi-million dollar businesses and the whole world was crazy. Right. So I know how we get there, but the thing is, if you actually just give them their damn spin, they will- less tantrums. The tantrums and the meltdowns are a reaction from having your spins taken away. Imagine you're, you know, one of those kids that are separated at the border from their parents. Do you think they're having meltdowns? Yes. They would like their Mm -hmm. mom. Yeah. So that's the experience of an autistic kid. It losing their spin is like losing a person. So it's not going to make you now, it's not gonna make you like want to smile at the grocery store. Yeah. But someone's telling you like, hey, you can have five minutes with your mom if you don't cry about your mom being dead in the grocery store. Then you're like, okay, I guess I could pull it together. Yeah. And all that pulling together is what led to my autistic burnout and my suicidal issues at the end of 2020 was I had been pulling it together and pulling it together and pulling it together and pulling it together. And then it's like the floodgates get released. Yeah. So most autistic people have between six and eight active spins at a time. Wow. That's like your, but think about like people. People in the world, yeah. Six to eight. The the closest that you love the most that you'd fight for is probably around that number. And you probably have different friends or friends and family in your life that do different things, right? Like you probably don't talk about the same things with your mom as you do with your best friend, as you do with your- Absolutely not. Mom, if you're listening, you know that. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what our spins do. So what I shared was my current spins um, is 
books have been the constant, the big one, like a parent in a way. Yeah. Um, so I wrote my first book when I was seven. Um, yeah. It was a book of poetry. I might have it right here. It is. Here it is. <gasps> I wrote this when oh, I was seven. Book. It is very cute. It is called Lifelong Chances. Why did I call a book Lifelong Chances when I was seven? It is very unclear. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, so, yes, yeah, so I have been writing books for yeah. as long as I can remember, more than 40 years. Um, so that's the big one, the rock, the stability, the thing I always come back to for many people that might be like a parent. Yeah. Um, then I have um, like a comforting one. So maybe yeah. this is like your sister, your best friend. And for me, that's the band Crowded House. Yeah, um, which we did speak been, about on the last podcast, yeah. but everyone listening They've been along. like an obsessed fan since 1989. And um, if I'm ever sad, I can put on one of their albums. And it's like visiting with my bestie. Yeah. like, And, and if I visit with my bestie, she's going to say like, how are you? And then we get into alexithymia and interoception and some of the other reasons why that's hard to answer that question. But yeah. like a Crowded House album does not ask me that. And I can be transported <laughs> to yeah. where I was and how I felt. And I can change physically inside my body how I feel by listening to that music. Whereas I think with a neurotypical person, someone saying, how are you? And then you say, I'm sort of shitty. It's been a hard week at work. And then they're like, tell me what happened. You're like, my boss is an asshole. They start to feel better. I don't feel better. That doesn't help me. Wow. So it's very, it feels like I have to tell this story with words that I don't have access to. I have selective mutism, which is also why I write. Like, so now I got to find words. I don't really want to talk. So I'm going to tell this story and then I end up lying. I've always had a problem with lying, but I never lie about anything important. I lie. But in answer to that question. Yeah. Yeah. So now I'll like say some shorthand version of it, which isn't exactly accurate just because I can't like, it's like so draining to like tell Mm -hmm. someone what's wrong, but Mm -hmm. I can be with a crowded house song. Yeah. And I can move through my emotions somatically without having to put words or feelings to them. Incredible. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I went through kind of the different types. So you probably know autistic people that are into Star Trek. That's a really yeah. famous. Um, today we had an episode of the autistic culture podcast about Pokemon, especially yeah. with that's a really big one, super popular in the autistic community. So if you're like, who were those weirdos at the Star Trek convention? A lot of us are autistic. And now we are with our friends, Star Trek. Yeah. Right. And then also with other humans. We do like other humans, but it's like when we're with our, it's like introducing your friends to your mom. It's like, this yep. is the most important thing in my life. And it's the most important thing in your life. Yeah. How amazing is this? Yeah. Yeah. That is just making so much sense. Yeah. Making so, so much sense. This is a little different than the sensory stuff. I haven't done a post on this, but it's on my list too. So 
the headphones and the tone, like a lot of that stuff comes from the fact we have hyper-connected brains. And so we experience sounds, lights, noises differently than neurotypical people. So that leads us to things like headphones, sunglasses inside. Um, Yeah, that's that hypersensitivity. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Like somebody commented on that post. um, One of my spins is the color yellow. Wow. It's not. If if she's researching the color yellow, which I'm not a color theorist, maybe you could do. Someone's probably wrote their dissertation on yellow. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Like, bless their hearts. Then it's a special interest. What she's talking about is I love experiencing the color yellow. That is a stim. So that has to do with um, the um, what we call autistic um, uh, autistic joy. So we experience colors more as much as we experience sounds more loudly. We experience colors more loudly. We experience glitter more loudly. Okay, so that's the so, stimulant that she's actually responding to. She she feels comfortable and happy when yes, she she's surrounded a by sensory yellow. seeker. Yeah. And so when she needs comfort, she will seek sensory stuff. Some autistic people are sensory avoiders. And by the way, us are both depending on the moment. And they might go into like a dark room. Yeah. And just sit quietly. Yeah. Which by the way is kind of me. That's I have a dark room. So just go sit quietly. It has a massage chair in there. So (laughs) I'd go go and sit in that room in that case. (laughs) Angela, what has been like you, you had the burnout at the end of 2020 and then you decided to explore what it would look like if you just dropped the mask, if you didn't rebuild the scaffolding, if you didn't put the supports back in. Can you talk a little bit with us about what that journey then looked like? Yeah, well, I would say the first thing to know is that wasn't like on January 1st, 2021, I figured that out. That's that's like a two-year process. The real question was, how do I want to rebuild this? Yeah. And I think actually, I don't don't care who you are. You should actually be asking that. You really should be asking that. It's only, I had, as you know, a high-impact event in 2016. And it's only in the last three to four months that I've actually deliberately asked myself that question. And that to me in hindsight is astonishing because I burnt my world to the ground in 2016. Mm -hmm. But it's only in the last few months that I've actually said, how do I actually want this to be? Yeah. It's very, I mean, it's tricky because you have like things in place. You have bills, you have kids. Like I couldn't be like, I can't remember how old my kid was then, 13. Yeah. I couldn't be like, how would I like to rebuild this? I wish I didn't have a kid. (laughs) <laughs> there was some there was some irrevocable truths, weren't there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I mean, that's still true, but um but I wasn't even in a place where I could ask those questions. So that yeah. was an evolving process. What I did realize is having all those supports, as many as I had, became its own job. So it's like I had my full-time job. And then I had a second job of managing my support team, which if you think about a kid with autism, like especially a kid who has a lot of needs, maybe they're nonverbal, maybe they have some other physical needs, like IBS, we're known for having like gut issues. Maybe they have high uh, migraines a lot, which is another thing we have. Maybe they have lupus or an autoimmune condition. 
you know that their mom, like most autism moms, it's like a job managing all the kids, doctors, all the kids, whatever equipment, getting the equipment service. Like that's basically what I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew I just did not have the energy for that. So there's not none. I don't have no support. Like it's not like unmasking for me was dropping all the supports, but the question and why it's so hard to answer is like, what supports do I need? There are plenty. Like what supports do I still need? How can I make those supports easier for me to manage? And I'll talk specifically about how I did this. And then also how can I change my life, my family, my business, how can I change everything so that I need fewer supports? Because I built a life that required more and more supports. One yeah. of the things I had done was I was speaking at events 200 days of the year. Oh my so goodness. if I'm speaking that much, then I'm traveling that much. And if all the lights and sounds from an airport burn me out and I can't speak, it explains why I need a plane, which yeah. means I need a pilot, which means I need to pay a whole yeah. lot of money for fees, not just the plane. There are many other fees that go with a plane. So travel got axed. Now, some of that was easy because the pandemic shut down travel, but I didn't pick it back up. I'm very selective and I rarely travel because I know how it's going to kick my ass. Yeah. I think that level of awareness is so important. Right. So that was one of the things that if you asked me in September of 2020, what if you just stopped traveling? It would be like you were speaking Aramaic. Like yeah. I, I make a living by traveling. That's what I to do. Speak. Speak, yeah. Living. Where would you like me to stop travel? Like, obviously, travel's gonna come back. I'm gonna have to travel. What am I gonna like? It just didn't make sense. So it took a long time for me to restructure my needs so that taking care of my extra support needs wasn't a whole nother full-time job. Yeah. Um, I changed my relationship dramatically with my husband. Okay. So I didn't realize this, and this is possible. So ladies, listen up. I didn't realize this, but because I was the primary breadwinner, mm-hmm. I was doing a lot of the decision-making and I was doing a lot of that mental load, that invisible labor. Yeah. And I couldn't keep doing it. I really could. Yeah. I literally was going to die. Yeah. And I was able to reestablish my relationship with my husband in a totally, I feel like we got married finally in 2021 when I like really surrendered that invisible labor. And so a lot of my support system is much more him. Yeah. But not because he wasn't trying to do it or he wasn't helpful before, but he would be helpful because I was like, energetically holding the space for what I needed from him, like a to-do list. Yeah. I kept the to-do list and then he had to do the action. And now I've like released that work of project management. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I'm just absolutely shockingly terrible at things like driving and cooking. Yeah. That you can't (laughs) do them at all. And so he does all the driving and cooking, but I'm not holding a place for any You're not directing it. Not directing it. Finances, building. How has that helped him and then the relationship? 
Yeah, it's a totally different relationship. It's a true partnership. I didn't know I didn't have a true partnership. I thought we had one. I would have told you I had one. Yeah. Uh, but it completely changed our power dynamic. Um, you know, it's like the court sort of did this with, um, you know, let's say you're married to somebody for 20 years. You didn't work. Your husband made a million dollars a year. You would be owed half of that wealth that you guys had built. And the court sort of says that's because you being the homemaker made it possible for him to have a job where he made a million dollars. Right. We've all acknowledged that. I don't think I had realized that though. For me, it's like Uh, the opposite, but it's like, this is my money. This is my business. I'm going to make the decisions. I'm going to pick the vacation locations. I'm going to pick the food I want to eat. I'm going to make a list of foods I want. I'm going to make a list of the music I want on and the times I want it on. Like, I was like, it's my money. I'm going to run the show. You just do the labor. I had no idea I was even doing that. Yeah. Like, I had no idea. I didn't see how, you know, I think we, I don't know if we've talked about this, but there's a lot about powerful women being emasculating yeah. And I was like, why doesn't he just like stand up? Why doesn't he just get a spine? What? And yeah. it's like, I'd sucked the air out of the room for that. Yeah. That's so, an incredible shift. Huge, massive. Yeah. And again, years of laying on my couch, doing the work that looked like napping for two yeah. days. <laughs> <laughs> but I think sometimes, you know, um, I heard a quote recently well, wasn't quite it was actually um it was actually a preacher and he said that this or she said that the skills are built in the silence meaning that you know and it was particularly talking about david um in the field as a young shepherd and the mm. reason he could slay goliath was not because he suddenly decided he was going to but he'd been fighting lions and bears to protect the sheep um right. and was That's about building the muscle yeah, and it was about building the building our strength and our skills in the quiet. So I love that it was like two years of what looked like napping because I think that's when we do allow the real work to emerge. What about if travel has shifted for you, you've really shifted the foundations of your relationship. What about with your business? What's been the impact with your business? So I thought I would hire a team back up and scale up. And what I decided to do was scale down my business. So we went from $20 million a year going towards 40 and we scaled back. My profit is the same. So my profit was about 3 million when we were at 20. Um, Now it's 3 million at 6 million, much smaller team um, and much less management. And the thing that gives me energy because it's my special interest is working on people's books. So yeah. I built everyone, all my coaches, everyone was teaching me like, you have to get coaches. You have to be able to scale. You have to replicate your system. You have to build systems so other people can teach it. You can't be the only teacher. That is true. If you're trying to scale, I'm trying to like stay alive. So <laughs> there's a difference. <laughs> there's a difference. The thing that gives me energy is working yeah. one-on-one with my clients on their books. Yeah. And when you give that away, you give away everything. For me, it was. Yeah. No, I think for other people, what might feed their soul is like scaling and having a team and get yourself out of your business. There's like um, 
my friend Adrian Dorenson runs a company where their um, goal is be able to take a month out of your business and your business keeps running. Yeah. And like, that probably sounds great. I don't know what people are doing during this month. <laughs> I'm the I same. I'm like, people say don't work so hard. I'm like, but I love what I do. Like, <laughs> right. I'm like, it sounds terrible to me to not yeah. working with people's books. Like, I guess if I took a month off, I would write more of my own books. But yeah. like, I'm pretty high. I write a book a year. So yeah happy with that I'm not trying to write more but like yeah do you think one of the biggest gifts of this last few years has been the fact that you've been able to really crystallize what matters yeah and that and that is why I'm doing the unmasking autism journaling process because I am learning I learn from writing yeah and I'm learning from the process like where am I still masking and do I want to drop it? So there's a lot of stuff in there about social issues. Yeah. Challenges that I have with friends or family or relationships. Yeah. So one of the things I dropped, this is like very personal and very painful, but one of the things I realized is the person I masked most with was my mom. Oh. And so I am not no contact, but I pretty much stopped talking to my mom because yeah. I couldn't figure out how to not mask and be with my mom. Yeah. And I guess one of the things that I'm like working out this year in the journaling is like, is that trade-off worth it? When I was at my most suicidal, it was definitely worth it because I did not have the spoons yeah. to mask for my mom. Like I didn't have the spoons to do it. Just yeah. did not was not available, was not accessible, was not, it was like the example I used of posting on Facebook. Yeah. So I know people are like family first and you should never let anything, you know, get involved, get interrupt with your family. Oh, that's, a, like, that's a whole different episode. I call bullshit on that every day. Right. Yeah. So when it was a matter of staying alive, I was like, okay, I need to pause this because I don't have it. Now I'm like, how important is to, what do I want to give up yeah. to be able to manage that? And then what do I get back from it? Yeah. And so journaling about some of that stuff, the, um, the social communication challenges that come with having a different brain wiring and having a hyper-connected brain, what ones do I want to not mask, but get the supports to actually be able to function in that? And what ones do I want to let go? Like I have let go. It was very painful, but I have let go of building a hundred million dollar business. Yeah. I'm building a lifestyle business that's somewhere between three and 9 million a year. That's fine. Yeah. And I, it's fine. I don't need to make more every quarter. I yeah. don't need to do quarterly earnings reports. Some years I might make three, some years I might make nine, some yeah. months I might make a million dollars, some months I might take off. I'm not yeah. trying to build a spreadsheet that I can show to a private equity investor. Yeah. Just living my life here, trying to stay alive, pay the bills. <laughs> I love that. And so, I, when you first announced at the start of the year that you were going to do this journal, this public journal, this journey, the first thing I thought was that is so courageous, mm. incredibly courageous. The second thing as you've actually been writing it and sharing it with us on the platform is 
is the fact is that it actually brings us all into your world. And when we come into your world, we're coming to the world of millions of people who are different from us. Mm. And I'm grateful for that. And I think the other thing that it's doing is it's actually creating commonality because there are things that you talk that are very specifically autism or spins or whatever the challenges that you're going through, like, you know, cutting, but they're actually human challenges. They're actually what we're all experiencing. And I love that you're generating that commonality. Did you have anything in mind when you committed to doing this process? Did you have anything or was it just, I want to unmask and this is the way I stay committed to it? Writing is easy for me and writing is definitely how I process. Yeah. I will say the thing that the, I'm so shocked by this, but the number one comments I get both on the autistic culture podcast and on my journal project, um, the number one comment I get is this helps with my kids so much. So many parents write to me. I was not doing it for that reason. Like, oh, I cannot tell you. It never even occurred to me. Yeah. But so many people have told me they are maybe trying to get themselves diagnosed, trying to get their kid diagnosed, realizing even if they're not getting their kid diagnosed, they guessed wrong and there could be other other guests to make so i love i love my book business i love helping people write books it's very satisfying but i've never quite felt like i was changing kids lives in this way like permanently when i was a kid like it wasn't even an option to know girls could have autism yeah like it just wasn't on the radar and God, if if my mom could have had this information, I'm sure she would have done things differently. I'm sure I would have done things differently. Like, so that to me was not at all the goal, but that's definitely been like a huge motivating factor to keep going and being so raw. And I, I mean, it is, you are reading my diary. Yeah, it is. So. You're not, you're not shaping it for our consumption. You're just putting your diary and your journal up. Yep. And I turn off comments and that is to kind of protect my energy. Yeah. So that's like the biggest thing I decided was like, no one needs to comment, but if I actually put this out there, I might help people. And I know I have, which is crazy. I also love takeaway, quick sidebar takeaway for everyone listening. You have the option to turn off comments. You don't have to play the full game. Yeah, it's a trick though. In Facebook, it's a trick. So there's an option for comments that says, let people tagged in this post comment. Only people tagged in this post can comment. So Ah. I see that and I don't tag anyone. I love that. That's and fantastic. That is that like, was a breakthrough for me. I love, I love, I love all of our conversations. But for everyone listening along, one, I hope you can feel and hear yourself in what Angela's been talking about. But two, that's almost worth like a decade of conversation. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Angela, we are going to have to wrap up before we go. Is there anything else that you'd love to share with the audience or say as we wrap this up? Yeah, I think for me, knowing your audience for this show, the thing to think about as a leader is Mm -hmm. 
not only you, because I had thought about me, you are different. Every single person is a different neurodivergent creature that needs to learn to advocate for themselves, to be their own support system, to understand what their needs are. Like we all have that. That's not, doesn't have anything to do with being autistic. What do you need to be successful? You're probably on top of that. As leaders though, and why I share this journal and why I make the Autistic Culture Podcast, as leaders, I have shifted dramatically to understanding that my customers and clients are that too. And so much of coaching or writing speeches is about these like big platitudes that apply to everyone. Like, let's just say it's, I don't know, wake up happy, never go to bed angry. You say a platitude like that and you really mean it and think it applies to everyone. What you're not thinking is for some people that's like doing damage. Yeah. And so, so much of the coaching and expert space, and I am a big problem in this. Like I have a body of work that's problematic that I'm like, all you need to do is this. This is the way it's done. And we're not thinking about someone might not have access to that because of a chronic illness, a condition like ADHD or Asperger's or um, chronic PTSD. Like there are many things at play. Systematic racism is at play. So you might think just do this, but you're not really understanding how would that affect someone in an immigrant community? How would that affect someone who's black? How would that affect like... So there's a lot more to think about. And what I've shifted in my language because of the work I've done on my own autism the last two years is it's a tiny shift and it's huge. Try this. This might work. Mm -hmm. Here's something I do. Yeah. One of the things that works for me. Yeah. Instead of this is the right way. Because that is doing unintentional harm that none of us mean to do. But ableism is baked in. White supremacy is baked in. Law of attraction is a huge example. There are things that work really well for me in law of attraction that wouldn't work for somebody who's in the middle of a manic episode. Absolutely. It's not just like make a vision board, everybody. Yeah. But we could say one of the things that work for me is just getting really clear on my goals with pictures. So making it visual has been really helpful for me. I've done these vision boards where I see myself as a New York Times bestseller speaking to 5,000 people. And when I look at that, it makes me really inspired and more likely for me to get that outcome. Yeah. So work on your language, catch yourself. I still catch myself all the time because that's how ableism and white supremacy work. Like I still catch myself all the time, but just like, don't give up what you're doing. Don't not make money. Don't opt out of capitalism. You don't have to move to a self-sustaining farm with windmills, but just claim what works for you as what works for you and know that it's not one size fits all. I love that so much. Dr. Angela Loria, as always, it's amazing to talk with you. Thank you for giving us your time again. Cannot wait to hear the responses to this episode and look forward to chatting again sometime in the future. Oh my God, me too. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you for joining me for this episode of Raise 1000 Voices. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. And if you have, then I would love you to subscribe to and rate the show on your favorite platform. Our show notes, resources, and links to all our socials can be found at anygiventuesday.com.au forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to join a growing community of clever, creative, and courageous women who know that they want to be seen, heard, and remembered, then join us in our Facebook group, Raise 1000 Voices. Until we speak again, take care and remember, you were born to raise your voice.